Yeah, so we actually ended up buying a lamp after the last time we spoke. Uh, so we have a floor lamp now. It's it's really good. Um, so we ended up getting getting like a larger floor lamp, and we thought about getting the Philips Hue bulbs, uh, but then we realized we thought since we only have the one lamp, we thought let's start with an LED lamp, and then um, we have like a smart switch, so we can just plug it directly into the smart switch, and then I think Kai you mentioned already in the last mm. episode that we had a smart switch. So basically, what we do is that we just plug it into a smart switch, and we can just turn that switch on and off. Um, which cuts off the power. So when we come home, we can just say, hey, dingus, turn on the floor lamp, and then it's on. And what I really like with the smart switch is that you actually get um, data of your energy usage every day. It's really cool. So this smart plug basically gives you, real, uh, gives you data uh, about your daily energy usage. And it's it's really nice because I think it can really make you more conscious about how much you're using, and you can also see... Um, like we yesterday, I think we didn't use it very much, but that was just because we realized that like the sun is going down a lot later now, so we didn't have to turn the light on, and it's quite cool just to see like your your daily behavior, and also I guess it's also a bit of an indicator about how how much time because it's in our living room, so we find out how much time we actually spend in our living room and probably like play games or watch something, uh, so it's pretty cool. And it's also pretty pretty clever um, the app. Um, uses your location because it uses that for a whole bunch of things anyway with like automatic triggers and those kind of things and then uses that to figure out your local um, electricity prices so in BC in British Columbia here we only have one um, energy provider BC Hydro so it automatically selects that and then just tells you based on knowing what provider you're with how much you uh, you would pay for for the usage of that electricity yeah, so now I, I really want to buy some more of those plugs. I think it would be cool to have one at the TV as well, and one at uh, our computer setup, once we have our computers set up. Um, and I just think it's really cool that you can really sort of optimize how much energy you're using and just be aware of it. And I think, for example, if we would, we could have decided not to have an LED lamp, we could just have the smart uh, plug and then just have a regular bulb. And then I think we, that would definitely have convinced us to buy an LED lamp. Um, so yeah, I think I'm really enjoying that, and I think that really added to our home, um, like home kit or home animation setup that we have here. And it integrates nicely with um, with our Amazon um, smart assistant as well. So I like that. Speaking of uh, home kit, what what app are you actually using to control your lights, Zach? I uh, just the the Apple Home app. Um, is it called Home or Home Kit? How are you finding that one? It does the job. So I set everything up with the Philips Hue app, which I still have on my phone, but I don't think I've opened uh, in about a week and a half now. Uh, I do like the idea of just having everything in the one app. And, you know, the thought process behind that is if I get more HomeKit uh, enabled stuff, it'd be great to just use the one app. I do have some automation things set up. So, you know, like the lights turn on automatically if I come home when it's dark and they always turn off if I leave the house, that kind of thing. And yeah, the automation seems good enough in the HomeKit app. Um, it's not quite as custom as the Philips Hue, I noticed, but I also don't need uh, a lot of the detailed controls that that app, that app gives you. I'm surprised how little um, attention the Home app gets because I think it's, it's quite a... Uh, well, <laughs> it's not the nicest app. It's not, not the most intuitive app. It's taking me way longer to figure out anything ever when I try to do something. I know what I want to do, but it's always super confusing to get there. So if you're like, when I set up a trigger for when any of multiple people come home, it's always slightly odd how to get there. I figured it out in the end, but it always feels weird. Or if you set up multiple rooms, it, it just looks super strange when you swipe through your different rooms and they all have those kind of weird default uh, wallpapers and then all the things no matter how what they are kind of do certain things when you when you accidentally tap them so your lights turn off your your uh your power turns off because you accidentally uh, uh tapped something instead of swiping i find the app quite surprisingly um confusing and difficult to use and 
very little improvement considering how much Apple seems to uh, uh, care about HomeKit and, and kind of smart home stuff. I'm surprised that there is not more effort on making the app a nicer thing to use. Um, the HomeKit app, it's not available on Mac yet, is it? Uh, with Mojave, it will be. Did they officially... Did they show that? Yeah, yeah. It, oh, okay. it is one of the... Um, yeah, yeah. Projects. Yeah. Uh, Project Marzipan. Marzipan. What did Apple call it? I don't think they called it. They called it Sneak Peek. Yeah, Project Sneak Project Peek. Project Sneak Peek. Um, yeah, because I would expect that to become available. And then I also thought it would be a perfect opportunity to just redesign the app and redesign the flows. Um, do you know if that's something they're going to do? Is did anything Did anything change in, in iOS 12, Zach? Well, I wasn't using it when iOS 11 was around to compare it, so um, I don't know if anything's changed. You send us some, yeah, you should send us some screenshots. Okay, I will. Uh, I'm also curious, how much are you using the Home app for day-to-day -day controls, though, compared to uh, voice assistance? Because I, I, I don't like the app at all, I, it really pushes me to use the, the, um, all the voice assistants instead. So I'm... I'm basically only using it for setting up. Like now, um, we talked about that last week, um, uh, that Sonos will enable AirPlay 2. So now they did that. Um, and to get your Sonos uh, speakers into the kind of AirPlay um, ecosystem, you have to use the home app. So I, I had to use it to set that up and then haven't touched it since. Okay, interesting. Uh, somebody also had some shortcuts follow-up. It's not that much of a follow-up, more than... Uh, I've been sitting a lot on trains um, commuting, and I just had this idea. Um, it was more of a photo experience. I was thinking about like what we spoke about, how they could... I was basically thinking about how general population more aware of the shortcuts and the shortcut app. And this is probably nothing that would happen, but I was sort of thinking about that. Wouldn't it be cool if... In the same way that you have, uh, when the, you know how all of the iMessage apps were introduced a couple of years ago? Yep. And you could actually make apps only for iMessages? Yep. Yeah, I thought it would be cool if you could do something like that. So it's like a special, a separate store just for the, just for the home, uh, just for all of the shortcuts. And I know that there are some that are recommended by Apple and some like starter ones, but it would be quite cool if that could be more like, Either like a store where you can get like a bundle of apps that you can then combine to a shortcut and it's all sort of prepared for you. Or it could be more of a more of a social thing where it's actually more like a more like a free store where people just share, more like a open source sort of community where people can find contribute to like sharing their own shortcuts and then uh, other people can start downloading the shortcuts or utilizing the shortcuts. I find that would be quite cool. Um but it does require a very different business model than something like the App Store. Yeah, you're right. I think it is interesting because they do have the gallery which you can go through, but that seems to be heavily curated and doesn't look like any anyone could add to that uh, as they want. It seems to be there's probably a few people at Apple uh, in charge of that. It is interesting that you can share shortcuts. Um, so there is a, a file type with a, a dot .shortcut extension that you can share from inside the Shortcuts app. Um, doesn't look like you can share it over iMessage at the moment, but uh, that might be a beta thing. You can definitely share it uh, through most other apps, including email. Um, so that might be a way to um, sort of promote shortcuts. If you've, if you've got one that's particularly useful, you can um, share it with your friends. But um, the biggest thing that I think in the interest of driving shortcut adoption would be to have it installed uh, every with every update to iOS 12. Uh, but at this stage, it doesn't look like that's what they're going to do. Um, so I think that's an interesting decision as well. Uh, because, I mean, if you want this app to get in front of millions of people, uh, they, have a, they have a way to do that quite easily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is interesting that it won't be there by default because I think people actually have to be aware of it and go and search for it. I was wondering if there's something that third-party apps rely on as well. Do If a third-party app want to have something like Siri shortcuts, is that something that would rely on the shortcut app? Interestingly enough, no. Um, so if the device supports Siri, which I think all iOS 12 devices do, uh, any of the shortcuts will surface around the OS and they don't need 
Um, so shortcuts being the things that developers create and then donate to the system, so the frequently used actions, they will appear around the OS and can be uh, added to Siri via a voice command without the shortcuts app. The shortcuts app is for, for a few things. It's for chaining those together to perform more complex actions, but also for interacting with a lot of the system iOS elements like uh, and adding those to... Um, to a chain of, of actions. Um, so things like toggling do not disturb or starting directions in the Maps app, they can all be chained together in the Shortcuts app, but they're not, to run a shortcut uh, donated by a third party app is not dependent on having the Shortcuts app. Uh, this is made all the more confusing by everything having the name Shortcuts. <laughs> yeah. But I think that that is also the reason why it makes sense for uh, the app not to come with iOS 12, because I do think the Shortcuts app itself is very much focused on on kind of heavy heavy users that know what they want to do. It's not really something that most people will accidentally run into. Those are more the um, the donations that developers uh, implement in their apps that will then be surfaced to users, and you can just add voice commands to trigger those. But I think if if you would um, have no idea what what shortcuts is, and you would open the app. It's quite overwhelming, so I think it's it kind of makes sense to not have something that is quite powerful, but also very confusing on everyone's phone by default. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And I mean, that said, I'm sure there will be plenty of features on the front page of the App Store on day one, and and probably for few weeks to follow, um, promoting apps that make use of shortcuts as well as the Apple Shortcuts app. Uh, so I'm sure if you know you browse the App Store at all, you will come across the Shortcuts app. Uh, it'll just be interesting to see, uh, I guess, how interesting that is to uh, people outside of the tech community. How interested are people in downloading shortcuts and creating shortcuts and then using them frequently? So that'll be something uh, that we'll have to wait and see. I mean, we kind of, I mean... I think overall we will probably have a very tiny fraction of all iOS users using the Shortcuts app. I mean, there is already the the workflow app, right? And that is definitely a very, very small uh, percentage of all iOS users using that one. And I don't think that percentage is so low only because it didn't have the deeper system integrations that we're getting with Shortcuts. I just think those are very, very specific uh, things for for... Um, iOS power users that enable you to do things you wouldn't otherwise be able to do, but I don't think it's something that that all iOS users should necessarily uh, start using to to build their kind of shortcuts to things they would want to do in the system. So we got some new MacBook Pros this week. Uh, Apple quietly dropped a press release uh, announcing some updates to the 13 and 15 inch MacBook Pros with Touch Bar. We're all MacBook Pro users, so I thought it would be interesting to start by uh, sort of mentioning what uh, MacBook Pro we use on a, on a daily basis and maybe then we can discuss the changes and if, we're, if they're at all interesting to us. Yeah, that sounds great. I've used MacBook Pro as my main computer for many years now. Um, I, my personal machine is a 2016 uh, non-touch bar MacBook Pro, um, MacBook Escape, as it's been dubbed in some other uh, places around the internet. <laughs> um, and at work, I'm currently using a 2017 15-inch MacBook Pro. Uh, that, that one does have a touch bar. Uh, what about you two? What are you using? Uh, we're both using a 13-inch 2017. I think the official name is two Thunderbolt 3 ports, <clears throat> so also the one without touch bar. The, 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 the marketing name, the very, very nice sounding um, two Thunderbolt 3 ports, that's easy to remember. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I think, I think um, yeah, we decided to go with that. We do have refurbished models, um, just because we bought them earlier this year, we figured it felt a bit unnecessary to buy completely new ones. And I think refurbished ones are like surprise. Uh, it's, it's a fair bit. I think it was probably like 200, $250 cheaper. 
Um, so I think that's quite good, especially considering that we bought it in, in quite a bad season. We knew that new ones would come out quite soon, or at least we anticipated that. So we decided to go with the refurbished ones, and I think it's been working really well. I don't, I haven't, I haven't had any problems with with my refurbished one. But it was more, it was more that we, I mean, we we left the country, we we moved, so we wanted something that's kind of small that we can take with us uh if you leave australia you also get the uh the tax back so uh, we got get a pretty decent deal on them um but in general i'm not a big fan of using mobile computers i'm i'm definitely in a, a either a mac pro or imac uh realm and prefer working on that but it's uh it's quite a terrible time to buy either of those two machines so i'm stuck with this uh, this MacBook until Apple bumps the iMac or Mac Pro. Yeah, I thought it was quite an interesting series of updates. And I know we're all users of the non-touch bar MacBook Pro, but that, that didn't get an update this week. It was only to the touch bar models. Um, so I thought I'd just very quickly mention what changed them or the most significant changes. Uh, so the 13-inch MacBook Pro uh, is now, now has a quad-core processor, which brings its performance almost up to scratch with the with the old 15 inches, which is quite nice. Um, up until now, you've been limited to a dual-core uh, processor on the 13-inch. Uh, and that also means the 15-inch now has a, a processor with six cores. So these machines are even more powerful. Uh, the 15-inch can also be upgraded to 32 gigabytes of RAM, which I know was a big complaint among many Pro users uh, up until now, that the, that the top-of-the-line MacBook Pro could still only go to, to 16 gigs of RAM. Uh, and there's also been some changes to the screen. They now have True Tone uh, technology, so that's sort of to adjust the color temperature of the screen depending on the ambient light. And I know that does also work with certain third-party monitors, which I think it's, it's a pretty nice feature and it sort of fits in nicely with Night Shift. And even the, the touch bar now has True Tone, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I, I do think that... I, I see why they would do that, because I think... Like Apple, they are quite perfectionists. And I think if you have a perfect monitor, a perfect display where you have the true tone enabled, and then you have this sort of, it might be like a bit of a jarring effect if the, if the touch bar has a completely different, completely different screen. I think you get a uniformity and it probably looks nicer together if you get it on both. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I know some people have found the touch bar quite jarring that they're using their computer and images are changing out from under them on the keyboard. So that might be another step towards making it a little more subtle, a little less uh, recognizable at a glance, uh, and just sort of making it blend in with the rest of the computer, uh, particularly when it's when it's dark or you're in low light. Do you actually use the touch bar on your 15-inch? Yeah, I do. I like it way more than I thought I would. I think you're the first person I have ever heard saying that. <laughs> I think the main uh, feature of the touch bar is... Uh, is Touch ID. Um, I mean, the Apple Watch Unlock is nice, but it doesn't work all the time, so it is it is quite handy to have uh, the Touch ID there. But also the Touch Bar itself. I mean, the Escape key is a non-issue I found. I, I don't have a problem with hitting that instead of the the physical button. And I so seldom use the the function keys on uh, my MacBook without the uh, without the Touch Bar anyway. That it is kind of nice to have the Touch Bar there to have quick actions. Um, at certain times and, you know, have those adapt to what I'm working on. I mean, I probably interact with it maybe five or six times on any given day, so it's not an all-the-time thing, but there are definitely some shortcuts that are useful. Yeah, I did use I did use a Touch Bar Mac for a while, and I did I, I agree, there were certain things that I did use. I think in Xcode I was, like, commenting things out um, with the Touch Bar, like you have the double double slashes. Uh, so I did use that, and I used a few a few other things, but then... One thing that I noticed that's quite frustrating is the music controls. It's it's quite hard if you want to just like decrease the volume or increase the volume, and like it it can be a bit like fiddly. And I think it's it's especially when you get the slider, it feels a bit unnatural that you first have to touch the touch bar and then you have to pull in whatever direction you want to. And I think that's instantaneous. You can actually just start dragging it, but. It just never felt natural for me. So I think that's the that's the controls that I have struggled with the most. For me, the problem is more that you uh, can't rely on it always being there. So I never, like on my keyboard, I never look at the keys while typing. And I use the function keys the same way. If I want to reduce the, the volume, I just go for the third button in the top top right. 
if I want to increase the volume, it's a second one. If I want to play or pause, I, I might kind of find my way to, to uh, another two or three uh, buttons to the left. It's kind of muscle memory of knowing where things are and how to trigger them. But on a touch bar, you completely lose that. And I never really got into... Um, I didn't even want to get into a habit of, of kind of refocusing and trying to look at what's on my keyboard instead. I don't know. I had the touch bar crashing on me more often than I thought it had any usefulness for me. What would happen when the touch bar crashed? I'm curious. I don't think I've ever had that happen. Not really. Uh, it just doesn't... For So once, once it was quite annoying, I had headphones on and the volume slider... So I was in a volume slider... Um, and the touch bar would crash, so nothing would happen anymore. I I try to kind of uh, uh, wait a bit, try to uh, kind of touch on the touch bar, and it wouldn't respond for about um, thirty seconds or so. And then all of a sudden, volume would go to max volume. So uh, I was just throwing my he the headphones off my uh, off my ears um, because it was so incredibly loud all of a sudden. Um, that was one of the kind of touch bar getting stuck or crashing and another time it would just not recover so I had to uh, just um, reboot the Mac so it would just be in, in its default state, wouldn't recover and I had to reboot for it to, to work again considering that I'm not using it a lot, it wasn't a big issue, I, I probably kept it in a stuck state for, for uh, an hour or so but definitely not um, I, I definitely don't get value out of it considering that it complicates kind of something that you would rely want to rely on like a keyboard you want to rely on a hundred percent and if you have anything that kind of gets said even from hundred percent to to ninety nine percent i i don't think it's worth it considering especially that i don't get a lot of value out of whatever there is on the touch bar itself yeah that's fair enough so touch bar aside what do you think of the new ones i mean there are some nice changes that aren't related to the touch bar are they enough to make you even a little bit tempted by the new ones um, I, I'm mostly excited what that means for, for the iMac because that means we probably also see a, a six-core iMac sometime this fall. Um, so I'm, I'm more excited about getting new, new Intel processors into, into an iMac. I will probably end up using the, my MacBook that I have at the moment. It's kind of super low-spec 13-inch to have the kind of travel conference uh, type uh, laptop that I take with me if I need to, but will try to do all all my real work on on an on an iMac that I'll have at home. Yeah, that's fair enough. I think the quad core uh, on the thirteen inch is quite interesting because I really do think that the thirteen inch is the proper size for a laptop. Um, it's really nice to have a laptop that's portable that when you get to where you're going, whether that be home office or, or the office at work, um, that you can plug into an external monitor. But when you're on the road, when you're on a bus, maybe in a cafe, at a conference, I kind of I find that the 15 inch is, is too big, um, too clunky. Uh, it is nice for getting work done, but the 13 inch is the right size for that travel type computer. And I think it's really good now that we can have uh, better processors on that machine. Uh, you know, for for CPU intensive tasks, uh, they can get done on a 13 inch laptop. So it's no longer the choice between sort of a low, uh, like a portable computer that's doesn't have great specs and a 15 inch which is quite bulky to carry around that does have the power and performance to get you uh, what you need did you order one no <laughs> <laughs> no will you order no one? i'm not in the market for a new mac at the moment okay. but it does make me excited for my next mac purchase uh, whenever that might be yeah, I think if I wouldn't have bought one a few months ago, I would definitely be very interested in the 13-inch for many of the reasons that you mentioned, Isaac. I think it is a really nice size of a computer. You can really just take it with you to a cafe or to to conferences. And I think it's a really nice form factor. I do I do think it's a bit unfortunate that I didn't do an upgrade to the non-touch bar 13-inch just because I feel like I'm not a big user of the touch bar. And it feels a bit unnecessary to to pay the extra for it. But I do also understand why they did it. I think this is the sort of form factor that they, they've been trying to push for a while. And I think they like they seem to have been quite excited about the touch bar once that was announced. And I think they want to stick with it. So it makes sense that they focus on that. And this is the pro, the pro machine. So I see why they did that. But I think that's 
kind of shows Apple's commitment that the Touch Bar Macs are kind of the, the pro or the higher will stay the higher spec one. There was some discussions that people wanted like higher spec uh, MacBooks without Touch Bar, um, and just that we're not seeing updates for the uh, what do we call it uh, non non Touch Bar thirteen uh, inch MacBooks alone is a good indication because they use different Intel processors. Those Intel processors are probably not available in in the volumes Apple would need at the moment, so we'll probably see them sometime in. Um, uh, in fall with with like hopefully other other Mac computers being updated, but that kind of indicates that those computers will probably keep the lower spec uh, CPUs and are kind of in the in the entry level range for the Mac Pros. And I think we also we kind of have to talk about a keyboard within new MacBooks. Um, so Apple says uh, this is the third generation uh, butterfly keyboard. Um, after they had a first generation, a second generation, a second and a half generation with a 2017. And now this is supposed to be a third generation. And I think Apple's official word is that it was designed to be more quiet and not for reliability uh, improvements. But um, I think it just had a, a teardown of the new MacBook. And they're using those kind of, I guess it's silicone or plastic film. Yeah, I think they said silicone. Um, to uh, uh, inside of the uh, just underneath the keycaps to uh, kind of prevent I mean that would make them more quiet but it also seems to prevent uh, uh, dust and, and other things to go go under the, the butterfly uh, switches which could then potentially uh, fix the reliability issues I mean I've never had issues I've, I've, I usually upgrade my computer once a year anyway so I didn't really have any longer term uh, usage and then having flaky keyboards. Yeah, but I do think it's it's worth looking at the video because they did also, I think they did like a cleaning when they, after they teared it down and took the, took, when they took the keycap key off, you could, um, they were also using like a, um, some air and was blowing on the key basically. So you could see that the dust that was there and the things around, they would go away. Um, so yeah, I think... I don't know, I, I assume it was by design and uh, it might help. So let's see. Yeah, I would be very surprised after the backlash that they got uh, from the last few generations of Butterfly Keyboard if they haven't done at least something to try and improve the reliability. Uh, it might even be that they just don't want to admit it um, or they haven't had enough time to do thorough testing so they don't want to commit to anything. But I would be very surprised if, if these keyboards have the same issues as the 2016 uh, and the 2017 MacBook Pros uh, have been known to have. I think there are kind of two things to that. First, it's, I mean, Apple's definitely done quite extensive testing on the keyboards and they definitely have numbers on actual returns and issues they see with the 2016 and 2017 butterfly uh, keyboards. Um, and they double down on that it's a tiny, tiny percentage of people being affected. Um, and I mean, we got to take that as, as it is. I've, you hear a lot of noise of people that are affected or people that know people that have issues. Um, as I said, I, I didn't have any issues myself. Um, but I also think as a second one, it is difficult for Apple to admit to issues at the moment because they have a lot of uh, uh, lawsuits against them about those uh, reliability issues. And then admitting that they fixed a problem means they admit they had a problem in the first place so i think apple's in a difficult situation there where uh where they probably can't admit fixing an issue even if if that would be something they've done yeah so there was the 10 year anniversary of um the app store on tuesday on the 10th of july for us here um probably the 11th for zach yeah something like that yeah dates are confusing um, so I think you mentioned, Zach, that people were starting to post uh, some screenshots of what apps they had into when, when the App Store first was released. Um, did you have an iPhone when the App Store came out? I definitely did not have an iPhone when the App Store came out. I probably barely knew what the iPhone was uh, 10 years ago when the App Store came out. Um, but... Uh, apparently, lots of our friends on Twitter had iPhones when the when the App Store came out, and there was a bit of a trend this week posting screenshots of the first apps you downloaded. Um, and then I found this even more interesting. 
posting about the first apps you downloaded that you still have installed uh, 10 years later. Mm. Did either of you go back and look at your, your purchase history? I didn't because I'm in the same situation as you. I didn't. This is, I mean, this is a weird thing to complain about, but I feel a little bit sad and left out when those things happened like 10 years ago because I didn't have an iPhone when the first one came out. And that was partly because I lived in Sweden and Sweden didn't get the first iPhone. Um, I think it was the 3GS that was the first iPhone that was available in Sweden in Swedish. I mean, people did still go abroad and... Um, got their phones and kept it in English, but by that time my English was just so bad, so I didn't, I didn't get one. And I do sort of feel like I missed out on this whole history. We watched, we watched a video the other day um, about a person on YouTube, and she showed her, she showed her old, her first iPhone, and it was just such a huge phone or such a thick phone. And I, I wish I still had one, and I think that would have been cool. Um, so no, the answer is I did not look at my purchase history because I didn't have any apps downloaded. And um, for me, it was a problem. Um, I moved in 2011, I think. I moved from Germany to Sweden and I changed my uh, app store region uh, with that move. And Apple at that point, at least, uh, didn't really deal with uh, customers changing their uh, store regions too well. So I've lost the entire history of everything I bought between the day the App Store launched and the, let me check, I think uh, 12th of March 2011. 2011. So I don't know. I don't know what the first app is um, that I bought. What if you would guess, would it be something, what would you think? Would you have had a German app or still, still, were you using the American app store? Do you know? No, no, it was, it was the German app store. So would there have been as many apps available in the German app store back then as in the so, American yeah. one? I think just from memory, it's probably a Super Monkey Ball. That was a Sega game. I think it was like a... Somewhat around ten ten dollars at a time. Um, I think that was that's probably expensive for an app nowadays. <laughs> it is. Wow. But people were excited how how cheap it was back then because most games. I mean, it was a basically a fully featured video game, and most games at a time were um, still around the sixty dollars uh, mark. So getting super a fully featured. Super Monkey Ball for $10 was incredibly cheap. I mean, those prices didn't last a long time, but at a time it was super exciting to get a Super Monkey Ball for, for $10. I'm sorry, I'm sitting here laughing because I think that Super Monkey Ball sounds like a really either lame expression or a weird curse word. <laughs> it just doesn't sound like a real game. Um, is it still available? Good question. I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to look. Maybe it's still available. Um, try to download Super Monkey Ball and see how much it is. Um, but yeah, I did, uh, I did definitely still follow it on Twitter and did see people posting images. And there were also, um, there were also f a lot of blogs and websites where they wrote about it. And I thought it was quite interesting to go through like the top 10 or the ones that they highlighted. Um, I think 9 to, f nine to 5 Mac had a pretty good... Um, summary of different apps that were available, and they have put out really nicely nice screenshots of every every of the app and how it changed of the apps that they sort of thought were special and how it changed over the years. And I think you can really definitely see like a, th a trend between the apps. Um, many of them go from like a, I mean, it definitely go from more of a schematic um, style to a bit flatter and a bit more modern I guess um, but some of them also go from like a quite a dark background and quite like yeah dark colors and then it goes over to the light light nuances one thing I did think was interesting was to look at the eBay app because that's apparently been available since 2008 and I think eBay nowadays is quite boring and like really it's it's not a very attractive app or website but then if you look at how it evolved it's it's really gotten quite far
Yeah, definitely. I think it is very interesting to see the evolution of, of these apps. And I mean, it's only been a decade, uh, but they've gone through so many so many design changes. And as you mentioned, Marlon, there are definitely some key sort of trends that have emerged. Um, I mean, a lot of the apps looked the same at the beginning, lots, using lots of uh, standard UI kit elements. And um, I think sort of got away from that a little bit, uh, you know, a few years later. And then back uh, when iOS 7 came out, I think 2013 that was, uh, a lot of the apps adopted flatter designs and they all sort of moved uh, to looking similar again. And now we're back to lots of custom uh, designs. We've even got some some dark modes in here, um, looking at the OmniFocus app for that. Um, so yeah, it is quite interesting to look through this, this 9 to 5 Mac article and see uh, how the apps have changed. Yeah, um, no, I think I think it's good to just just have a look through them because I think you don't you don't notice you don't notice how much it's changed, but it's quite drastical differences for for ten years. Like you said, it feels like a lot of apps have evolved quite quickly. Um, I also think it was interesting. Um, Loop Insider linked to something from CNET, um, which basically described what the different what the change has been from. Um, like in the tech industry since the since the iPhone came out, and I thought it was quite nice of a quote that um, I think they basically said that the, um, the iPhone was like a digital Swift army knife um, that could basically do anything from like being like a radio to a calculator to an alarm clock, and I think that's a really cool like summary, and I think that's something you never really had. Like you always had all those different devices for those things you wanted to do. And now like I think alarm clock is a perfect example. I'm relying on my phone for so many things, like like the alarm clock. And sometimes like I'm 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 almost thinking like, wait, maybe I should have bought a like an analog clock or an old alarm clock because um sometimes I don't want to miss a flight or something and I would really like to rely on like a secondary device. But I just never would think about buying that like if I go to go to a store just because I think I have my phone for that. Like I, I just can really do do everything with my phone. I think that's something um, that the App Store definitely sort of provided that people had the chance to explore those different areas and provide different type of different type of apps that weren't really people didn't really imagine before the App Store came out. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I was listening to an episode of Hurry Slowly earlier this week, and sort of related, sort of not. Um, the discussion was around. Uh, phones being able to do everything for us and sort of how in a way that might have taken us away from the real world somewhat and that you know even as few as 10 years ago uh, you would carry around a bag or a purse with an assortment of different items in there uh, and your phone has replaced a lot of them these days and uh, it, was, it was an interesting discussion not so much around the tech angle but more about um, the tactility of these items and how you know, through everyday use, they go through wear and tear and how that means something. I mean, if, you're, if your purse is scuffed, um, if you've brushed against a brick wall while you're in a rush, for example, I mean, that's a, a physical, that's kind of physical damage and that um, sort of has a memory associated with it. Or, um, you know, if you have uh, 30 cards in your wallet and you're missing one of them, there might be a story behind that. Whereas when everything's digital and everything's on your phone, uh, yes, it is super, super convenient. Um, but we also do lose a bit of the um, the realness uh, associated with these things because it almost is like living in a fantasy. I mean, we have everything that, you know, almost everything that we want available almost all the time. And that, that part is absolutely amazing. And the App Store really has changed things uh, for the better in that everything is available at all times. And we're not going to be in those situations where, um, you know, we need to carry a million different things on our person to, to just get through the night, for example. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree that it does lose, it loses a bit of a sort of like personal touch, but I do think, like you said, it's for the better, everything is sort of consolidated in one place. But I do still admire when I see people or when I hear of people who actually bring a physical notepad with them. Like, I think that's actually a really, it seems like a powerful thing to have with you, because if you have any thoughts, you can just like directly write it down without being distracted. Um, so I've sort of been trying to do that sometimes, especially like when I want to just like scribble something down. But then I'm always getting into this situation where I might have written down an idea and I'm like actually going to consult, like I, I want to make that into a project or maybe I wrote down ideas for a blog post and I want to 
actually start writing the blog post. And then I always have it on the, if, if I do have it on a physical paper, I sort of feel a bit of a regret about writing it on the paper f- in the first place because I can't do the copy and paste, which is something that you get get in your phone. So even if you might not have an idea of where whatever you write down is going to end up, I think having the iPhone and like a note app, note-taking app to write all those things down in is something that's actually really beneficial because you can be so flexible in like what you want to do later if you want to put it in to-do list tasks or if you want to actually just write something like a longer post or something about it. So I've, I've sort of been trying to get back to this old-fashioned way of having a notebook with me, but I do always sort of tend to go back just because of the efficiency of the phone. It is almost funny that after 10 years of, of living this digital world, digital life and, you know, having everything in the palm of our hands, that there is almost a, a want sometimes to go back to simpler times. It, I find it a bit strange. I mean, Apple seems to agree with uh, screen time stuff. Yeah. Trying to t- discourage constant use of technology. That's true. But yeah, it is overall, I mean, it's crazy how far we've come. Well, while you guys were talking about uh, the olden days, I was going through... Um, trying to find as much evidence as I can on some of the first apps I've downloaded. It's, it's pretty hard. I found some relatively old screenshots. Um, the oldest one I can find is from... The oldest proper screenshot I can find is from December uh, 28, 2008. Um, and um, apart from the eBay app that Marlon just mentioned, I don't really remember... I have eBay and Twitterific are the only two apps I can actually remember using and liking. Otherwise, I had a tap defense game, a English-German translator app, um, something that's just called Free. I have no idea what that might be. What is it called? Free? Free. Yeah, I'm looking at it. The icon doesn't really tell you that much. It's like a number one. Yep. Yeah, but interesting enough, uh, the two that I do remember are also the two that are still around with with Twitterific and eBay. And Cydia. <laughs> Cydia, back then I still jailbroke my phone. Um, because I actually used, uh, I used the iPhone before uh, iOS 2, so I already had third-party apps. I think I had uh, Twitterific actually installed before the... Uh, App Store came out because they did distribute their Twitter client through Cydia before that. I've heard all the stories from back then about uh, the the early Twitterific days. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, it was interesting. Back then, you still, there was quite significant value in in jailbreaking your phone because we didn't have uh, apps being able to run in the background. But if you jailbreak, if you had a jailbroken iPhone, you could install some weird extension uh, into your phone where you could then allow specific apps to to keep running in the background. It would make your entire iPhone incredibly slow, but it means you could have, like if you used uh, Instant Messenger, you could have that running in the background, which was uh, the only way to do that back then. And I think we didn't have push notifications either. So um, to to have anything like that actually working, I thought jailbreaking seems to be... Uh, have been the only only way. One of the things that stuck out to me uh, when looking at people's screenshots from their early apps was there were a lot of games on the lists. And I'm just looking back through my list now. Um, it looks like I got a an iPod Touch uh, June of the following year, so about 11 months after the App Store launched. And almost all of the first dozen or so apps that I downloaded were games. And I've just come across one. Uh, called Pappy Jump. Do either of you remember Pappy Jump or did you play it? I want to Google it now. I feel like I recognize this name. Pappy as in... P-A-P-I? P-A. Jump. And it's still available to download. I've just just installed it on my phone. I'll play after the show. (laughs) It was like the original Doodle Jump. Oh, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Mm, I don't think I played it. I played. There were so jump, yeah, dual jump. I played. There were so many games like that. I just remember. I've, maybe they're still available, but I feel like I never. I haven't played those type of games in a long time. But I really enjoyed something like Doodle Jump. Yeah, I remember losing hours to Doodle Jump. But this, 
this was downloaded on the second day that I had an iPod Touch and I probably picked it up because it was free and I just remember the countless hours of, of fun that I've had playing this. Um, yeah, it's kind of crazy to just go through these. I've also got Paper Toss as one of the early apps. Um, oh, yeah, I remember that. A very, very popular one that I'm sure I was still playing a few years later. Um, it's, it's a bit nostalgic to go through this list and look at them all. Yeah, it is. I, I found an even earlier screenshot just now from September 2008. Yeah. And uh, another notable mention of NetNewsWire um, that was during a time when we still used RSS for, uh, for news and, and insights mm-hmm. into, into the Apple world. That's actually how I heard about Daring Fireball. I think Daring Fireball was, did a full subscription in Apple Mail back then. So Apple Mail had a built-in RSS reader. Oh, really? Yeah. And Daring Fireball was the default uh, subscription. Even, I think I've had my Mac in, in German, but I still had Daring Fireball, and I had no idea why anyone would read any of that. Oh, so you didn't even open and read it? I, I tried. I didn't speak any English, so it was kind of hard. So I was like, oh, that's a weird choice, and get rid of it. <laughs> um, but I used NetNewsWire uh, then, after... Uh, for for mostly German stuff. And uh, another very useful app, uh, Wi-Fi Finder, which was another Cydia app, um, because what that would do is it would, in the background, scan for Wi-Fi networks and then automatically connect to any open Wi-Fi and check whether it has a network connection. This feels like a huge battery drain. <laughs> it probably was. But um, getting... Uh, Edge data at a time was really expensive, at least in Germany. It was, I think, 80, 80 to $100 a month. And I was in, in school, high school, so I didn't really have uh, $80 to $100 a month. So I had to somehow find ways of still having network connectivity, and Wi-Fi Finder was, was helping with that quite a lot. I'm just looking at your screenshots. The SMS app there, is that Apple iMessage? Yeah, that was before we had iMessage. <laughs> was it just called SMS? Yep, it was just called SMS. Wow, it looks it looks so third party, and it's, yeah, it's very simple. Yeah, and I also had two folders, another CD era uh, edition. Um, iOS two didn't have uh, folders, so oh. you, I installed a third party application through Cydia Store to allow you to add things to folders. Why did you feel the need that you needed folders? I feel like I use folders a lot now, but I think if I wouldn't know about folders or if it wouldn't be a thing, I wouldn't go out and search for folders. So, how comes you? Was it a limitation that you couldn't have enough apps? Like you couldn't have more than four screens of apps, or what was the reason for you? needing the folders i don't think it was a needing it was more uh, when you have like back then if you had a jailbroken phone it was quite exciting to just check for what kind of new hacks people came up with that you could do with the rs device because it was the first time you kind of had a somewhat real computer with you at all times so it was quite exciting to do quite significant changes to the system by just installing something on your phone so it was just exciting about the ability to do that more so than I had a, a real need of, of having folders on my phone. So just looking at these, um, these screenshots from the 9to5Mac article, for Twitterific and for the Facebook app, um, so the two social networks they've got there, looking at the um, screenshots from the early years, most of the posts are text only. And if you look at the, uh, the screenshots from more recent years, the posts contain more media, like images, linked or quoted tweets or posts or whatever it might be. And I think it's really interesting that uh, the screenshots from 2008, it was quite apparent that most of the posts were just text only. And I guess that you know got to do with a whole bunch of things. Uh, now cameras are so much better. It's so much easier to take photos. We have more data. It's easier to share links. But I think there's something really nice and really like pure in just a text only social network. Um, and I, have a, I have a filter on Tweetbot, and I tweeted this earlier in the week that I sometimes apply that blocks or that hides all tweets that aren't either text only or um, like text with a link. And it's actually quite nice to go through uh, your Twitter feed sometimes without any images, without um, you know too much going on, no no quote tweets, no retweets, anything like that, and just sort of 
see what people are saying in plain text. Uh, and I, I kind of miss those days. It reminds me a bit of um, probably around 2010, 2011, when I was using Facebook on a very old phone that I think only had 2G, uh, only a 2G radio. So I was, I could only look at text only posts and I was using their mobile uh, Facebook site. It was, it's actually quite um, quite a different time, I guess, than, than all these this media-heavy social networking that we do today. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree that sometimes it feels like images. I'm mostly using Twitter, but if there are some images coming up or if there are articles that have images, that's definitely just like distracting me uh, from actually reading the text. And it's really sort of throws you off a bit you might be in a flow of like just like going through different tweets but then if you have the image in between it's just sort of changing the format of the it changes the flow of the whole of the whole app and it it does make it a bit more distracting to read so i think that's a good idea to have that type of filter um i do sometimes have i sometimes experience that by not by accident but it wasn't but it's not by choice if i'm if i'm on an airplane and i want to read twitter uh, and I don't have any Wi-Fi on the airplane. I just ha- don't have any of the images or no, no none of the links. So then it's sort of the same experience. You tend to just like go through the, the, all of the Twitter, all of the tweets with um, with actual text in. And I think it is a an interesting experience. And you really notice then how many of the tweets you just like skip by because they are all like linked to a third party third party site or they're all based on on images um and i do think people definitely use social media a bit differently like me for example i think i often attach an image to to any of my tweets or like they're somehow related to an image or something i've done and i feel like an image would make it a lot nicer but i do think it is quite valuable to just like have that experience to just be able to read through read through a flow as well Absolutely, you're right. Those uh, those images do tend to grab your attention, uh, particularly if you're going very quickly through a feed. Yeah, I'm just still in in marveling about. Uh, it was quite an exciting time when when constantly third party apps um, invented new iOS paradigms that then kind of moved into more apps and then even became system features, like Tweety, uh, like an early Twitter client that then was later bought by Twitter, uh, just adding um, pull to refresh. And it was amazing. And then everyone started using that. Yeah, now I feel completely lost if there's an app that doesn't have pull to refresh. Yeah, if they don't have any any way of reloading, it's it feels really awkward, especially if it is like a feed that you obviously should be able to reload somehow. Yeah, and there were so many things like that that kind of came from third parties and then kind of moved into into the system. I feel like there are not as many changes to user interface interactions at the moment. We're kind of stagnating on how we're using our phones. Yeah, and I think that comes with platform maturity as well. Uh, we're all quite comfortable with, with the way things are and the way they work. Yeah. Well, now I'm sad. <laughs> it's definitely been interesting to just to see, just to, just to take a step back and think about it and see how far it got. And I think no one anticipated that when the App Store first was was released. So I think it's very exciting. And now I want to download Doodle Jump again. Such a great game. Still 99 cents. Oh, it even says here, be warned, insanely addictive. That's their tagline. In general, how do you think we should end the podcast? We can't say we're running out of time each week. Because then people will be like, you just should have caught earlier. Can't we just say bye? Bye. See you next week. Bye.